Coming up on this week's show, a new handheld Mega Drive is on the way. How to make your own Nintendo PlayStation. And we get amazing stories from 90s Sega with Mike Fisher. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, maybe you got your hands on a Spectrum Next like me recently, or maybe you've been a long-time fan of the Specky. Have you seen Sinclair ZX Spectrum, a visual compendium? Whether it's new to you or you're enjoying a nostalgic return to your 8-bit gaming days, this visual compendium celebrates the best look of classic Spectrum games. You can check that out and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 411, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast. I do say that because um, I'm hoping you can't hear the sound of my teeth chattering. I hadn't been in this room for a few hours earlier. I finally got my heater on in here. I think it was around 10 degrees Celsius in this room when I walked in about 20 minutes ago. It is freezing at the moment here in you the You need UK, one so. of those electric blankets, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've already got... Um, luckily, we don't do video on this podcast yet, so I'm actually wearing... Some of our patrons may have seen me wearing this on the Christmas Hangout last month, my uh, big Christmas snooty blanket. So as you imagine, looking that sounds very, very manly. <laughs> well, you know me. So, uh, of course, this is a podcast one. No matter what's going on outside, we're huddled up nice and warm indoors, playing video games and celebrating all things about classic and retro gaming and technology, bringing it up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro and tech from over the last week and bringing you a veteran of the industry onto the show in the second half to give us their story. Now, I do love it when we cover just legendary companies. I mean, we love doing the indie devs as well. And, you know, we cover so many different topics on this podcast. But then when we delve inside a company as big as Sega, there is something quite special about that, I think. Yeah. And uh, today's guest is just absolutely amazing. Like, um, I think this is the first call I've done from China. And right. um, that's why I did the interv- interview solo. I think Joe was busy packing up books when you were uh, doing this interview. Otherwise, he would have probably loved to be in on this one. Yeah, Sega fanboy. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening to this one. Uh, you guys have done some absolutely fantastic interviews this last week or two while I've been packing books and posting them out. So I'm really excited for this one, Ravi. Yeah, this is uh, crazy. So it's uh, Mike Fisher, and uh, Mike's an absolutely lovely guy. He decided to come on the podcast, and he was the product manager of Sega of America. And, uh, you know, that's from 1990 to 97, which was kind of peak, peak years. Yeah. Mm. And then he went on to Namco to become the director of marketing till 2001 and then came back to Sega. So kind of missed out the um, Sega Saturn period, but returned for the Dreamcast period. And then Mike's gone on to some amazing stuff as well. He was at Microsoft as well. Um, You know, he was the general manager of marketing and then president and ceo of square enix as well wow. so um you know he's, he's gone on to some amazing stuff but um in this interview we talk about sega and his kind of unique perspective of it because um he's not really talked to many other people about it or done any podcasts or or yeah, interviews it was first podcast don't we yeah I, I, I think so and um yeah he started in the tokyo offices wow. so he has a total different route where he actually went from Tokyo over to America. So there's a, a a great kind of perspective of him. And 
he worked from different divisions as well. So he was working with, you know, a, a kind of oversight on all of the divisions, all of the different products coming out and uh, has a really unique view of the company. And I think as well, I mean, obviously anyone that's heard or read Console Wars will know that, you know, there was that real rivalry between Sega of Japan and Sega of America back in that period. And I think you're right, the fact that he had that perspective from the the Japanese office, because a lot of stuff that happened that kind of, he just found out about when it fell on his lap, stuff like the 32X he talks about that for him just kind of felt like it appeared out of nowhere. But also he was very well placed to kind of see the the development of Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, from the initial sketches to becoming the fully featured mascot of Sega. Yeah, and I also think Console Wars is a story that's been told many times, you mm. know, um, it's it's been covered to death and we try to talk about, you know, the different divisions in Europe as well and, uh, you know, the different approaches of Sega and, and, and try to expand the story a bit. Yeah, and I love the fact that he talks about hanging out with uh, Michael Jackson when he came over to uh, Sega's headquarters in Tokyo and uh, actually taking him out to an arcade, just him and Michael. Yeah, which and also Lady story. Diana's views on Sega as well, which yeah. is always interesting to hear about. So he's, uh, he's very open and honest as well, which we always love from uh, someone who's going to kind of spill the beans on what happened at these legendary companies. So uh, I think it's fair to say, you know, I think we've hit the ground running so far with our guests in 2024. And it continues this week, a little glimpse inside some maybe areas of Sega that you weren't familiar with back in the 90s with our special guest, Mike Fisher. And as you mentioned, Ravi, I mean, he's done so much after Sega as well that I think we definitely have to get him on for a part two. I we could do well. part three and part four, I yeah, think. Well, yeah. <laughs> so uh, looking forward to this one. He's going to be on the show in around 30 minutes from now. But of course, before we bring you the interview, we like to bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last week. And while we're talking about Sega, I've been seeing this story um, quite a bit on my socials. And also a big thank you to Jocular, who uh, submitted this in our Discord. And if you join the Retro Art Discord, there is actually a channel in there dedicated to news stories. So if you see anything maybe on your timelines over the week and you think other guys might want to talk about that, we'd love it if you dropped it in there and we can hopefully cover it on a future episode. But this is a new device that allows you to play Mega Drive games handheld. Yeah, this is cool. So this is the the Hyperkin Mega 95, it is called. So obviously by Hyperkin who have been, you know, all over the place with controllers and, you know, you know, mini consoles and different um, kind of emulation consoles and stuff like that. So they've done a showcase for this in this last week. And uh, yeah, it nail on the head there. It is a handheld Sega Mega Drive, mm. which plays original cartridges. Um, now, just kind of to describe, before we kind of go through some of the specs and stuff, I just want to get this out here because I'm worried one of you guys might mention it. To me, it looks like if the six button sega you know mega drive controller the six button yeah. controller was to have a baby with the gizmondo <laughs> that's what it looks like to me wow <laughs> there's a console that you mentioned much anymore the gizmondo. <laughs> that's what it looks like but yeah imagine the uh the six button controller split it in half and then you've got a five inch display in the middle of it yeah or you could think of it maybe as like a switch with uh mega drive controllers hanging off the side yeah hopefully it's not got the uh, rubber surrounding of the gizmondo as well (laughs) that that perished yeah (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely um now yeah the cool thing about this the reason people are talking about this is it it plays original hardware it is playing the original mega drive cartridges so it plays both mega drive and genesis cartridges uh which Mm. is fantastic like I say, five-inch display on there, and you can switch it between the original 4.3 and 16.9 modes, 
uh, for the rate, the aspect ratio there. Uh, I was interested in that because I was thinking, I tried to Google this before and I actually binged it using mm, a Bing nice. Copilot. Whether there were any uh, Mega Drive slash Genesis games that were 16.9, Bing reckoned there wasn't, but I've got a feeling yeah. I might have read about one or two. I can never remember which. I'm terrible with this stuff. I'm no, ex- I'm no expert. I am 100% not yeah. an expert on this on screen ratios and stuff, so I can never remember which way around it is. But it plays both, <laughs> so yeah, I know okay. that much. Um, interestingly as well, you mentioned the Switch there. Similar to the Switch, uh, it does actually have a docking station as well. Oh, nice. A USB-C docking station, so you can plug it into your TV. Oh, that's uh, cool. Yeah, which is which is pretty cool. So no word at this point on the release date of it or how much it's going to cost. Uh, but they they their other one that they did, which was a Nintendo one, they did last year. The Superboy. The Superboy was yeah. 100 and... What was it last year? I can't remember when it was. 1999, I think. Yeah, that, that was 1999. Yeah. So it's probably going to be about $120, oh, £115 yeah. or something like that. But yeah, it looks really cool. Um, apparently, uh, their kind of their their previous you know units and machines they've used, they've obviously not told you know revealed any details about the hardware on this thing. But historically, Hyperkin have kind of used a mix of um, you know emulation and hardware, right? In, in this, terms of like how they do it, which is cool. This dock looks nice. Um, the fact it's got the kind of D sub um, pads that you yeah, can, you can put, put the original Mega Drive controllers it. into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's really smart. Actually, I didn't notice that until now. And and I think uh, I like the name as well. It, it sounds like something your your grandma would be like, "Oh, get your Mega ninety five out." <laughs> you know, totally <laughs> not knowing what it is. Yeah. yeah, I like that actually. There was some I, there was something about that Mega ninety five that got it for me as well. It did it did sound Sega, you know. Like, yeah. Well, it's the Mega, you know, Mega Drive yeah. kind of thing, and you know, ninety five. I couldn't help but associate it with. 1995 and it just kind of not the look of it but the whole concept of it really obviously reminds me of the Sega Nomad um because that is essentially what it is it's a modern if you will kind of modern Sega Nomad but it's really cool to see which um, was kind of based on the Mega Jet wasn't it which was um, yeah the one that was on Japanese airlines yeah 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 it's very relevant to uh, this week's interview as well this, oh yeah uh, good point. device yeah <laughs> And I imagine this will have a, a much nicer screen and a lot longer battery life than using the, the Nomad. So, 10 uh, hours battery on yeah. this, it says. Yeah. So, yeah. And I like that they've got with the six-button controller as well yeah. uh, 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 as the default, you know. Yeah, so it does look very cool. And I think, uh, you know, it, it is interesting because I think, obviously, you've got to have the original carts for these kind of systems, which I think in in some ways does limit the audience, obviously. It's got to be for people that like original collectors or maybe, I'm not sure whether like Everdrives and stuff work on these. I imagine they probably would. Because, I mean, as far as, a system, yeah. far as a system that thinks, it's just like a, any other cartridge, isn't it? You know, if you put it in a, a Mega Drive, for example. So in, if that did work, then that would be a nice way to basically have the entire Mega Drive library you know, in your bag, you can take it all over. That'd be pretty cool. Because I mean, obviously, a lot of these games are out on the Switch now. You know, on the Mega Drive emulator that's on there. But I think there is something very cool about you know having that kind of the proper Mega Drive pad layout, and even yeah. seeing like you know a Mega Drive style cartridge being or you could get the, top. the Sonic and Knuckles in in there as well. So it'd be huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just put trick at the thirty two X on there as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm just waiting for the first person to uh, make a YouTube video doing that. So uh, yeah, does look very cool. If you've ever wanted a handheld Mega Drive, and uh, maybe the Nomad is a bit out of your price range, then uh, Hyperkin have come to the rescue. We'll keep an eye on that story. Now, uh, while we're talking about Sega, um, what about this? Now, 
I imagine. Are you a fan of Vector Man on um, on the Mega Drive? Then, Joe, you explain to people what, what Vector Man is for those people. Oh, that like Vector Man. How, you know what? Vector Man flew me by as a kid. Um, right. I I didn't I didn't know of its existence. You know, back in the day when it came out, I wasn't wasn't aware of it um, until it was on every single compilation, Sega compilation there was. This is a Sega-heavy uh, episode, actually. Spoilers ahead yeah. there. <laughs> um, we we know yeah. the audience. <laughs> yeah, Vector Man. Uh, I think the first one was, there was two of them, one in 95 and one in 96, I want to say. Right. Two of them, Vector Man 1 and 2, both on the Sega Mega Drive. Platforming, running guns, uh, action kind of platformers, aren't they? Players, a little green, cool dude uh, who graphically... <sighs> How would you describe the graphics on Vector Man? It was He's a man game. made of balls. He's a man made of balls. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it was, it's like kind of like 2.5D, you know, it's 2D, but you know, it's got that kind of like silicon kind of look to it. And yeah, you 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 run and shoot. And it was quite a quite a I wouldn't say a cutesy game, but never saw it as like a, a violent game personally, which is where we're getting to, where I'm getting to with this. So uh eleven prototypes of Vector Man games. So Vectorman 3, if you will, have been uh, preserved online by a Swiss video game uh, preservationist called Combi Luent. And there's a really nice video compilation of these as well, which has been uploaded onto YouTube. But pretty much in the early 2000s, quite a few studios were approaching Sega and working with Sega to try and get a Vectorman 3 up and running. Mm. And the direction... Uh, I mean, it's really cool. The new the news is is the eleven prototypes are there for us to kind of like read through and, the documentation and watch the videos and stuff like that. And these are three D renders as well because yeah. originally it was a two D side on platformer, yes. and it yeah, yeah. it reminded me of um, Cyborg Justice where you kill them and they all kind of fall down into into pieces. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The way that he's kind of constructed, but yeah, it's, this is obviously a PlayStation Two targeted. Yeah, title, so this, so. yeah so this would have been for the playstation 2 uh and like i say most of these prototypes are from 2000 i, th- I think all of them are actually 2002 2003 and 2004 um with most of them being you know they were aimed for early 2000 releases um and for whatever reasons you know just never got off of the ground but it's like Vectorman 3 ultra Vectorman neo there was gonna be um, some of them were planned for the Dreamcast and then obviously ill-fated moved over to the PS2 uh, there was going to be one just simply titled Vector Man and they were all different developers and studios and stuff like that you know working on these various reasons and you know some of it in the documentation and stuff to why they didn't happen uh, but it's really interesting to see that all the different directions the game mm. could have gone because like I say I never saw it as like a, a violent kind of game I saw it a bit bit more on the cuter side but one of the versions of this game <laughs> it, he's not it, cute in that yeah <laughs> he's not cute in that it, it's a, a third person shooter where you're running around with a massive gatling gun and a flamethrower and you know destroying other people and robots it's a bit like halo isn't it i think in terms of the, the <laughs> gameplay mechanics looking at it he looks like the master chief as well <laughs> like you know what though it does a bit but some of the um cut scenes remind me a little bit of rise of the robots they, yeah, yeah, they did me as well. It reminded yeah. me of Rise of the Robots, and uh, I couldn't help but think. And this obviously would have been a little bit before it, but you remember the Bomberman reboot they did for Xbox 360? Yeah, which yeah. just bombed. No pun intended. Uh, where they made him all like you know brutal and cool and everything. It really reminded me of that. But then some of the other you know prototypes that have come out, 
they did go in the cutesy direction, the little kind of like mm. chibi robot kind of like direction of him, didn't they? Yeah. So it's really interesting to see. But I think it's also a sign of like where Sega's head was at at the time. Like they didn't really know what they were doing, I guess. It's interesting as well, apparently, yeah, they, they did use some of the, the technology they made, like the physics engine that we used in um, some other games as well. Apparently, um, full, the full auto series used quite a bit of the, the game engine they developed for this. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, same here, but apparently, yeah, there was, uh, you know, at least some of that technology that was used in other games in the end. But it is very cool to see these being preserved as well. I mean, I, I was kind of looking through these uh these YouTube compilations on here, just trying to find, like, a download link. I can't see that he shared any of these publicly. Mm. so far so it looks like at the moment is just basically a chance to have a you know an insight into a lost chapter of sega history there and kind of see you know how a a cancelled game was going through its development process which i always find interesting anyway i mean i love the you know the the games that weren't website we did a whole episode with frank gaskin uh, a couple of years ago and i think there is something fascinating isn't there about seeing particularly a game like this that went through so many different revisions and looked like you know you know they were getting pretty far along with it only for it to be completely scrapped. There's always something a bit tragic about seeing that because, you know, there was obviously a big team of people working on that. They probably spent months of their life, you know, mm. blood, sweat and tears into it and then it never happened. So I think it is always interesting when it does finally get out there for people to see and maybe honest their legacy a little bit, all the work that they put into it as well. So very cool. If you want to check that out, I'll link that video up in our show notes as well. Now, while we're talking about Sega, why don't we do three in a row? About Sega. <laughs> I wonder who did the news this week. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, this is a big story, and it was submitted by a few people on our Discord as well. Yeah, yeah. Including um, Video Game Arcade. Thank you for sharing the story with us. This is Tomb Raider running on the Sega 32X. Yeah, we've uh, seen quite a few of these recently, and it's all due to the Open Lara project, which is, you know, it's great because you can see the... Uh, kind of reverse engineering of a game and having these open versions of it fantastic they did one with gta and uh sadly that got taken down and i think uh open lara has kind of been left to to go on all these different systems so you know we saw 3do and jaguar ports coming out as well and now it seems to have hit the 32x which um i think is very apt because uh of course lara was originally aimed at a sega console uh, you know, it came out on the Saturn. Yeah. And um, I quite like how this one looks, actually. You know what? I uh, <laughs> I watched this last night. I was um, I was lying in bed and I watched uh, Sega Lord X. He's called a YouTuber I watch. And um, he talks about, we've mentioned it before, the Golden Axe 32X port. Yeah. They've actually also got that fully running on, on 32X hardware now. The one that's very similar to the arcade, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they've done a joint. It's a video, two-in-one video, you know, where he reviews, that kind of talks about both of them. And then halfway through the video, he starts talking about, you know, Open Lara and how now Tomb Raider is on the Sega 32X. And I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, this looks absolutely stunning. This looks brilliant. I didn't realise he was just playing the PlayStation footage to begin with. <laughs> the HD and remake. <laughs> and then he switched it to the to the uh to the 32X. Had he had a long day yesterday, Joe? <laughs> I had a very long day. Um I, I mean, graphically, I, I I've not gone back and looked. In my mind's eye, it reminds me of the Engage version of it. It's running right. pretty smooth. You know, there's no music in there, there's no sound effects or anything. It's completely silent, so they haven't got any sound on it yet. But in terms of frame rates and stuff, it's pretty decent. But the textures are a bit muddled, aren't they? Yeah, I, I think it's it's really zoomed in. So, yeah. uh, 
yeah, yeah, to to kind of get the less processing and stuff, and you know, uh, being able to handle that many textures. Lara seems to be a bit bigger than she would be on other ones, where you know you've probably got a lot of environment details and uh, stuff yeah. like draw distance seems to be pulled back a little bit as well. Oh, okay, maybe that's why it reminded me of the engaged version a little bit. But yeah, yeah true actually. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't one thing I wasn't expecting was. Uh, the enemies to be in there but they are they're in there they're present the wolves and stuff yeah they're yeah. all in there um it is only the first level of the game but you know running on 32x hardware as well the bear is in there as well uh where the bear comes and attacks you in that cave you know all the gunplay everything in there working pretty well some slow loading times to begin with but once the game's in there it's it all seems pretty good to be fair yeah, it's, I can't. It's, I can't wait to hear this with like a, a proper Sega soundtrack, you know, like yeah, an old school one. Yeah. yeah, that would be because I, cool. I can't imagine what the music would be like. I can imagine that's quite hard to implement. Yeah, I think you know, Tomb Raider's obviously got some iconic music in there. It's, it's all the that. incidental stuff, isn't it? So when yeah. you're walking into different parts, it gets triggered, and then I yeah. quite think of the Mega Drive yeah. having a go at that, though. I think it would be well having a go at like the ambience of like the yeah. violins and, <laughs> yeah. and the string the quartet drive. that you sometimes kind of the string instruments you get. It, it, could, it might sound really cool, yeah. Like it's not known for its subtlety, though, is it? The the Yamaha chip and the Mega Drive, yeah, yeah. kind of grungy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you imagine like you pull a lever, and it goes like that'd be awesome. Yeah, but yeah, I do think it's cool to see. It is because I mean, obviously, the library of games that came out on the 32x. I think was it like commercially? Is it like 40 games worldwide came out? Oh, of there? Got, maybe not maybe even that 40. many. Yeah, yeah, it's quite it's a small a library. And obviously, yeah. that was it. Was kind of the stopgap between the the Mega Drive and the Saturn, and wasn't on the market very long. Obviously, it was a you know a monumental failure in all honesty. Mm. But I think it does kind of prove. I mean, I've seen a few of these kind of videos and uh, this kind of what could have been lately. You know, people kind of untapping the power that was hidden inside the 32X, because I think it is definitely, understandably, a platform that doesn't get a lot of love and doesn't have a lot of kind of homebrews made for it. But I think it is interesting to see, you know, even a game that was definitely considered at the time fully next generation still running on like a souped-up Mega Drive. I think that is very interesting to see. I just want the accelerated Amiga version <laughs> to come <Yeah>. out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes you wonder if that would be possible. Because, I mean, you look at this and, uh, I mean, the, the frame rate is, I mean, you can see it dropping quite a bit, particularly when there's kind of a lot going on on the screen. And I don't know whether I've just been kind of spoilt with running, you know, Tomb Raider on like more modern kind of emulation packs and stuff over the years. I imagine if I went back and played the original PlayStation or or Saturn version, I might be surprised at kind of how janky it looked. Um, But I do think it does a good job. It definitely proves, I think, if this was released commercially and obviously they'd kind of optimised it a bit more, it would have been a viable game. Yeah, I, I I think with some of the textures, I always remember that Tomb Raider was quite about puzzles and yeah, some of the textures with like cubes and stuff. Are you going to be able to tell it? Um, you know, tell on on the thirty two X or may they have a method of um, you know having it so when you get closer to a texture, suddenly it gets more defined or, or like little cheats and hacks and all that can come in with you know optimization. Uh, it's very much a, a work in progress, isn't it? It is very impressive, though, and that's uh, ported at the moment by uh, X Proger. His name is, if you want to check that video out. Like I said, it's only the first level of it so far, but it would be interesting to see if he uh, does manage to get the full game loading in there as well and maybe releasing it. I think it will be uh, definitely something that most 32X owners would like to play. So if you want to follow the progress of that, I will link that up in our show notes as well. Now, we do have uh, plenty more stories to talk about. 
non-Sega related, actually. We do have a, uh, a make-your-own-Nintendo PlayStation guide coming up in just a minute, and also a really cool new Robocop and Predator game to talk about in just a second. Before we do that, let's take a quick moment to give a massive thank you to a regular sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast, and that is our wonderful mates at Shopify. Now, if you ever use Shopify, you'll know this sound. That is the sound of making moolah. That means you've just made a sale on Shopify. And the thing that we love about Shopify is whatever you sell, Shopify is there to help you grow your business. Now, maybe that's been one of your New Year's resolutions. Some of you guys, a lot of people at the moment are like, you know, starting up a bit of a side hustle. You know, we know that times are hard right now. So any ways to earn a bit of extra money? A lot of people are thinking of that right now. Yeah, yeah. I know a lot of people that are doing stuff like that. And uh, I think Shopify really makes it easy. You know, you can you can sell it on all the uh, social media channels really easily. And I, I can't work TikTok or any of these kind of things. So um, it's it's pretty impressive to have it all integrated. But also having 24-hour support is really important with something like that because, you know, if you're making sales, yeah, it needs to be done. And if something breaks, then, you know, uh, it's great to have that support. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Shopify is the commerce platform that is revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling, I've got a friend who's been selling T-shirts on there recently. I've got a mate who's been selling books on there too. We even went to a Christmas market in our village last month. A lot of the traders there were actually using Shopify in person because, you know, it's really good for that. And like you said, you know, they've got that shop-ready point-of-sale system, whether you're selling in person or online as well, across all your social media marketplaces, and it's full of industry-leading tools, ready to ignite your growth and give you complete control over your business too. And what's great about it is you don't need any technical skills. You know, you might have tried selling stuff in the past, setting up, you know, WordPress plugins and all that kind of thing and learning design and having to do all that yourself. Shopify takes care of it all for you. So if you want to get serious about your business and get serious about selling in 2024, why don't you get Shopify today. And of course, we've got you an incredible offer. If you use this as well, you'll be really supporting the podcast. You can sign up for a £1 a month trial. Nothing to lose. Give it a try for just a pound a month by going to shopify.co.uk slash retro hour. All lowercase, shopify.co.uk slash retro hour to take your business to the next level today. And get ready to hear a lot of this. And we thank our friends at Shopify for their continued support of the show. Right, then we are going to be talking to this week's special guest. Some incredible stories from Inside Sega. Back in the 90s, Mike Fisher. He's coming up on the podcast in just a minute. Before we do that, how incredible does this look? Now, uh, you might have been playing the the modern Robocop game. I know Joe picked up a copy for the uh, the Xbox, didn't you? Have, was it PlayStation 5 you got a copy Xbox, of it for? Yeah, I've got a PS5. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you got a copy of that over yeah. Christmas, which I must admit, I've been eyeing that up as well. Um, however, this has kind of caught my attention. This is a Game Boy-style Robocop versus Predator game that is completely free. I really love the look of this, and I really want to get my hands on it and give it a go. So this is, this is Robocop. Versus Predator. As you know, in the 90s, there was a a lot of versus series, you know, you yeah. know Robo, there was the Robocop versus Terminator games. And, Alien uh, versus Predator. Alien I, versus I used Predator. to collect comics and like some of the matchups were absolutely insane. Yeah. yeah. And, and they really went mad with them. But uh, I kind of loved that uh, Predator was always the biggest enemy in everything. Yeah, it, it, always, it always feels like it kind of comes back to like Predator and Alien, like these kind of like versus things, you know. 
I think there yeah. was a Superman versus Alien at one point. I remember well. Judge Dredd versus Predator. That was a yeah. good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think that kind of comes out the school playground, doesn't it? Like, oh, you be Robocop, I'll be Predator. You know, we'll have like a, <laughs> that kind of thing, yeah. Oh, man, you've just unlocked a memory there. We did, <laughs> do you remember Tremors? The grab yeah. lights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At school, in primary school, we were doing Critters versus Tremors. Wow. <laughs> you just reminded me. I think we did these. Red Dwarf first Predator. <laughs> <laughs> to have that imagination again, eh? That's brilliant. Just like Lister getting ripped up by the Predator. <laughs> Crichton getting his head ripped off. Yeah. Oh, so to make that game. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, we'll rein it back in. So we're talking here about a Game Boy style game, which is Robocop versus Predator, uh, which is totally free. Uh, it isn't available on the Game Boy, unfortunately. It is just running on a you know Windows PC at the moment, yeah. but it is completely for free. It has been put out by Oscar Celestini. I think you say how you say his name. Sorry if I've got that wrong. He's put that out there for everybody to see on Twitter and X. Hopefully, it doesn't get taken down or anything like that. But I love the look of this. It's you know it's it's a Game Boy game, and I've just been scrambling to see you know to try and find out if it's kind of based on any sort of previous engine you know if it's just the robocop versus terminator game you know on game boy and he's just reused the sprites and stuff it doesn't look yeah it it looks really similar to the game boy one just just robocop on there oh okay cool. yeah yeah just how he looks uh okay nostalgia for it yeah Uh, okay so he might have used sprites and stuff like that maybe um which you know which is fine but this um it's getting prey getting a lot of praise this looks really really cool it's a action platformer um you play as robocop and you know, kind of going through the streets of Detroit and stuff, but obviously uh, end up, you know, fighting the Predator. But what's really cool about it is, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there is a lot of um, 80s icons throughout the game. I mean, one one I will mention, um, because it is literally there on the post. Um, Oh, what's his name? Jack from uh, Big Trouble in Little Channel, Kurt Russell's character. Jack Burton, there we go. He's he's in the game, pops up at one point many characters from the Predator and, you know, the Robocop universe and some other characters in there have been flicking through, flicking through screenshots and uh, through the video of the game. But yeah, this looks wicked, man. This looks like a fully developed, published game. Really, really love the look of this. Um, so many little, like, you know, nods to Robocop. You know, there's even a flying level on there where he's got his jetpack from Robocop 3 and his gun arm. Um, you know, Ed, oh, I can never remember. Is it Ed 1029? Ed yeah. 209, you're right. Ed yeah. 209, is it? Yeah. Yeah, and numbers I, wrong. Yeah, and the, the amount of effort that's obviously gone into this, I mean, there is like a, a 30 minute YouTube playthrough that I'll link up in the show mm-hmm. notes if you want to check it out and get a little glimpse of kind of how this looks. Does it look quite difficult though? I mean, watching this, the guy who plays it does die quite a lot when he's <laughs> doing the first play of it. And there's quite a brutal uh, game over screen in here as well. Um, but I think it just looks like uh, this. if this was a commercial release on the Game Boy. Like, you know, 30 yeah. years ago, this would have been like, you know, one of the biggest sellers on the system, I think. Oh, yeah. It it, yeah. it just, through and through, just looks like, you know, if you sent sent me this and was just like, yeah, this came out in 1993 and you just yeah. never saw it, Joe. I mean, I'd be flabbergasted that, you know, I hadn't heard of it. But, you know, I, other than that, I wouldn't have any reason to believe it wasn't a fully fledged, you know, polished release. It it looks absolutely awesome. Yeah, and it's kind of got that, I think they call it the pea soup aesthetic yeah. of the game yeah. Boy, obviously that kind of, <laughs> yeah, like monochrome that. kind of green look graphics look incredible as well it's got some great chip tune music in here as well obviously you know kind of throwing it back to the uh the game boy as well um a few people in the comments have been saying they've been playing it on a steam deck 
oh, which cool. kind of works really well, having yeah, it like yeah. handheld, you know, and that kind of form factor. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just looks really, really polished if you want something that is, you know, remarkably it's free, but obviously I guess having these kind of IPs in there, not something you could really charge for, which is understandable that he's put it out for free. And uh, hopefully it does stay up. But I would say, like anything like this, now that it's out there, I would get it while you can. So um, I'll link that up in the show notes as well if you want to check it out. Now, something that um, we've probably all wanted since we heard about it a few years ago when that prototype was found of the Nintendo PlayStation. Weirdly, that video came up on my YouTube Recommended the other day. And I think it was like a decade ago, actually, wasn't it? When um, there was a guy that basically found the uh, the long-lost mythical Nintendo PlayStation prototype, or the Super Disc, as it was also known back then, um, in his, I think it was like his dad's attic or something, wasn't it? He found it. And then he made that little video, put it on Reddit, and was like, oh, okay, hey guys, I found this, what is it? And everyone was like, what? Like Jaws dropped the world over. A lot of people accused him of faking it, but we know obviously that now it goes out to conventions all around the world, and uh, I think it's sold for around quarter of a million pounds. Yeah, that you know, as far as we know, it's a one of a kind prototype. There's only one of them left in the world. But a lot of people looked at that and obviously thought that's kind of the the gaming holy grail. You know, I'd love to have that in my collection. Well, one guy's decided. He's not going to wait around for another one to appear. This is YouTuber James Channel, who's decided to make his own Nintendo PlayStation. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. I, I, I've only just watched through this video, and uh, I, I need to watch more of these guys' videos because he seems like my kind of guy. So, uh, yeah. you know, the premise was he had a half a PlayStation, <laughs> um, the bottom half of a PlayStation with all the circuitry and, you know, motherboard and everything on there. And then in a previous video, he made a, I think he'd made a handheld Super Nintendo himself. Yes. So he still had the shell of a Super Famicom Japanese Super Nintendo. And he thought, I'm going to put this PlayStation in this Super Nintendo. And the video is absolutely hilarious. It's about 10, 11 minutes long. You know, I'm I'm a simple guy. Like I, I can sometimes struggle with some videos where they're kind of like talking you through step by step how they did that, this, that and the other, you know, and make it really complicated. And it's all over my head. Literally, he's going through this and he's just there with like, you know, sawing bits, chopping bits <laughs> off them. And he's like, I don't know what this is, so I'm just going to cut it off. Oh, I needed it, so I need to stick it back on. Yeah. Like, it's, it, it, it's crazy. It's quite refreshing, actually, because mm. I watch a lot of stuff on YouTube and it's all meticulous and clean and everything. Yeah. This dude's just got an angle grinder. He's just yeah. going for it. <laughs> he's just like ripping bits off and uh, he's doing it really ghetto style. And I, and I kind of like that. You know, he's just glue gooding ports in my, there. My favourite comment from the YouTube video is a guy who says, I feel like I'm watching a man perform open heart surgery with an axe. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and the, the thing is as well, this isn't like really expensive hardware that he's doing it with. I can imagine the outrage if he was doing it with something expensive, but uh, an old the PlayStation. Actual, the actual Nintendo PlayStation Pro. <laughs> yeah. yeah that's it. But um, yeah, you know, PlayStation, you can, you can get PlayStations really cheap still, you know, the mm. original ones. And yeah, I, I, I love this. Well, this is like the ultimate Frankenstein smash them together and hope it works kind of <laughs> project that I've seen on YouTube. And the fact is, I mean, you know, I don't want to spoil it too much, but actually, because it is just a PlayStation, you know, motherboard shoved inside a Super Nintendo shell, he has to make some modifications, obviously, to make the uh, the parts fit in there and also, you know, kind of make some mods to fit the controller ports in the front as well. And the way that he mounts the CD-ROM drive mental, yeah. <laughs> vertically, completely exposed to the elements, spinning in the air inside the 
Super Nintendo's cartridge slot. That is the most ghetto mod I think I've ever seen. Would be good for the swap trick, though, that Ravi, I think, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. You, oh, just, like, no you could just flick it off and yeah. it would fly out. <laughs> Slightly dangerous, maybe. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. Wouldn't pass. I, l- I like this idea, though, but there should be more of it. Like, I'd like to see a Atari Dreamcast or something yeah. weird like that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you've uh, ever wanted to own your own Nintendo PlayStation, this is probably the closest thing that any of us will ever get. But I think, like you said, Ravi, a lot of these, I mean, I watch a lot of restoration videos and some of them, I mean, you know, they're, they're a bit like ASMR. Some of them aren't, they're really relaxing and, you know, yeah. showing you close-ups of nice gentle soldering. Not this video. No, this is, this is how I like build things, you yeah. know, so I can relate. Like, yeah. I imagine there are a lot of people watching this kind of through their fingers, you know, at their screen thinking, oh my God, but actually manages to get it working, working in the end. So it's uh, yeah, definitely testament to his skills. I think uh, there's probably more skill that's gone into this than he actually uh, portrays in the video. You know, he's actually quite elect- electronically gifted, I think, you know, to get stuff like this working. So uh, a really good channel. If you haven't seen it already, it's already clocked up um, 390,000 views in the last four days. So, uh, yeah, really funny video. If you want something to give you a bit of a giggle this weekend, the video is called I Made a Nintendo PlayStation by uh, James Channel. And I'll link that up. And, of course, the rest of the stories in our show notes as well. Okay, then we're going to be going inside the world of Sega with this week's very special guest, Mike Fisher. All those stories from 1990 to 1997, right there in the heyday of when it was all going on inside Sega. We'll hear that in just a moment. Before we do, just a quick sec to give a massive thank you to another sponsor of the Retro Hour podcast, and that is our buddies at ExpressVPN. And of course, we know about VPNs. They protect your privacy and security online. One thing you might not know, though, is if, like me, you maybe completely rinsed all of your streaming platforms when you're at home over Christmas, or maybe in this very cold weather that we've got here in the UK right now and in lots of parts of Europe, you know VPNs like ExpressVPN can actually unlock movies and shows that are normally only available in other countries. Yeah, it's great. You can actually get more for your money, you know. Um, yeah. I, they don't I've get been... any cheaper, are they, Netflix subscriptions? and No, no, like I've, I've been watching stuff from all over the world. And uh, yeah, at this, at this point as well, Netflix is definitely getting more expensive. I've noticed that with all of these services, they can, seem to be ramping them up. But um, yeah. this is a great way of getting more out of it. And, uh, you know, there's some stuff that's exclusive to different countries around the world. Um, I've been looking at American Netflix, but actually the Dutch Netflix is really cool. It's got um, all of the Lord of the Rings films on there and uh, Netflix Canada as well. It's got Silence of the Lambs and, uh, you know, Groundhog Day, which I know is one of your favourite films, Dan. Oh, I love that film. Yeah, there's so much on there. If you're paying for services like Netflix, you know, there's actually a hundred different countries' libraries you can go through with ExpressVPN. So maybe you love Korean dramas. You could watch Parasite off the South Korean Netflix. Even you can unlock other streaming services. Your networks with Hulu, BBC iPlayer, even YouTube. You know, there's a lot of YouTube videos that are region locked as well. Now, there is hundreds of VPNs out there. We know that. But ExpressVPN is the one that we've chosen for years now because it is so fast, isn't it? If you want to watch media, don't get I, I just leave it on. Like, yeah. Literally, I have it starting up on my PC. I just, I don't even think about it. I'm always vpn on there. Yeah, absolutely. And it works on all your devices, your phone, your consoles, your smart TV, so you can watch whatever you want on the go or on the big screen. So if you want to try it out, support the podcast by using our link, expressvpn.com slash retro. Sign up for a plan on there. We'll give you three months extra free on a one-year plan. So give that a go. A quarter of a year for free. Expressvpn.com slash retro. And a big thanks to our friends at ExpressVPN for their support of the podcast. 
Okay, next, inside the world of Sega, back in the day, some incredible, maybe unheard stories. I think this is the first podcast interview he's ever done, and he's just incredible as well, with the former Sega product manager, Mike Fisher, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and we're here today with Mike Fisher. And Mike was a product manager for Sega of America from 1991 to 1997, and then the vice president of entertainment marketing at Sega of America from 2001 to 2003. It's an honor to have you here, Mike. And um, I hear you're calling from China as well. Yes, that's right. I'm calling from the Inner Mongolia Autonomous Province of China, doing some work these days as a digital nomad bouncing over... uh, Asia. I was just in Japan for two months and uh, decided to spend some time exploring China. Oh, that's great. I know I know you have a good connection with Japan, so we're going to get some uh, nice insights there. Um, I've got a question that we always ask all of our guests, and that was, uh, what was your first kind of gaming experience or memory? Well, I, I played pinball as going back as far as I could reach a pinball machine. And as a, as a young kid, I still remember my first game of Pong in a pizza parlor. And I put every quarter I could find into that machine and just fell in love and stayed in love and playing arcade games as they came out. So Pong to Space Invaders to Donkey Kong and and everything in between. And I've never stopped playing. And what was your first kind of home computer or, or first console even? I was late to the home computer revolution, but I was always over at my friend's house playing on their, their Commodore computer. And, uh, like many folks in the U.S., it was the Atari 2600. That was was my true love. And I still remember my parents complaining that I'm spending all my time playing video games, uh, reading comic books, and playing Dungeons and & Dragons and, and telling me, how will you ever build a career if that's where you're spending all your free time? So jokes <laughs> on them. Yeah, it sounds like a youth uh, well spent. <laughs> and, um I was wondering, like, um, you know, how aware of a Sega were you growing up? And um, I know you said that you're into Atari. Of course, they were a a dominant force in um, America at the time. I had no idea what Sega was. Uh, What happened was I was uh, an engineering student in California and found myself not liking engineering and not being good at it and not wanting to work in the defense industry, which is pretty much where everyone from my university went. So I I sort of looked at myself and said, how do I get off of this track? And what is my passion that I want to follow? And so I decided that what I loved doing was games uh, and toys, I should say. And and I wanted to just bring joy to people as as opposed to to building bombs. So I switched to the School of Business uh, and wrote my senior thesis on economic forecasting and modeling of average revenue in the toy and games industry. I realized during the course of that work, I was not going to get a job, at least not in the United States. This was 1988, and a friend told me I could teach English in Japan. So I sent away for a brochure. I I found a professor on campus who introduced me to a school. I taught English in Tokyo from 88 to 90 while I knocked on the door of every game company I could. And it was there in Japan that I started playing Sega arcade games. Now, I realized after the fact that I had played some Sega games back in my pizza parlor days, but didn't, didn't connect the dots. Because yeah, they were uh, very much in the, in the arcade industry as well. But it, it also must have been a, a real kind of risk to go over to Japan at that time. You know, the world was a, a much bigger place then. 
I had I was young and stupid. I, I couldn't even afford a round trip ticket. I sold my mountain bike and my uh, my motor scooter to get enough money for a one way ticket. So I had no <laughs> choice but to be a success. And uh, when Sega ended up putting a, a want ad in the newspaper, and I saw it, and also every friend I had called me and told me about it because they knew I wanted to work in games. So I answered the ad in the newspaper. I went in for my interview. I really didn't speak much Japanese then because I was working as an English teacher, so I didn't have much chance to practice. And I, I remember there there were other candidates who had more qualified business degrees. There were other people who spoke more fluent Japanese. It was the only one who had really looked at the games business as a business. Uh, so I got the job in 1990 as an entry-level employee at Sega's Tokyo headquarters. And everything that I've had in my career since then, including Sega, Xbox, Epic Games, Namco, and more, uh, all came from there. I was wondering, then, did you focus any of your studies on like Mattel or, you know, these uh, big American toy manufacturers? And also, what fascinated you about the Japanese culture? I My idea was to go to Japan for a couple of years, become fluent in two years in the language, and then come <laughs> back and work at either Mattel or Nintendo. Because those are West Coast companies. And I, I was living in California. That was kind of the idealistic hope. And it was just through sh- force of sheer luck that Sega was the opportunity that happened for me. And so really it was, I wasn't particularly drawn, you know, to, to the Japanese culture. I wasn't a super big anime fan. It was, it was the only hope that I had of getting a job in the field that I loved. And honestly, it's not like I had a lot of other opportunities uh, to consider. So I thought I'd give it a shot. What was it like kind of moving from the the difference of, um, you know, American business culture compared to a, a Japanese culture? Was it a lot more kind of formal? It was crazy. So remember, it's not like I had a lot of American business experience, right? I came here more or less out of school. It was the games business. So even by Japanese standards, it was a little crazy. So when I went in, they had no idea what to do with me. And I had no idea what to do. So they put me to work doing the things that a lot of entry-level employees would do. I was copying EP ROMs. I remember hearing Tony Takushi on your, your podcast talk about that, which is just miserable because, you know, you have these four to eight ROMs to a cartridge. Fitting them in is a nightmare. And if you do them wrong, you have to do them all. It's just a miserable job. I took screenshots, uh, literally, you know, with a camera under a hood, taking 36 photos of the same, the same picture on screen. I had to write summaries for for all of the subsidiaries around the world, which is how I got to engage with UK. I, I reached a point where I realized that I was just going nowhere. And, and I went to my boss and I said, you know, I can do this and more. I still didn't speak a Japanese. He gave me the Fantasy Star 2 strategy guide and said, translate this. So with the help of, of one of my coworkers, uh, Emi Kawamura, who saved the day for me. She would write the phonetic pronunciation and then that would help me look up the words in a dictionary. It took weeks and weeks. I finished it and I gave it to him. And then he gave me the Fantasy Star 3 strategy guide, which was two volumes. And he said, do this. I wanted to punch him. I did it. It took it just as long to do the two volumes as it had the one before. But I'll be damned. When I was done, 
my Japanese was getting pretty good. And it was all video game Japanese, right? So I knew how to say, go to the wizard to get the magic scroll <laughs> and, uh, you know, put on your armor and equip your, your sword. And that really got me going. And from that point on, they started to give me more responsibility. I started to work between the, the local game teams and the overseas marketing partners and licensing partners. So I worked with uh, Emiko Yamamoto and the great team that made all of the Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck games. Um, I got to work with Michael Jackson and Arthur Sena on their licensed games and just incredible opportunities one after the other from that time at Sega. It was really a, a really special time for me working in that Tokyo office. So I guess you had that advantage of being able to talk to the different divisions as well. And, uh, you know, how, how was Sega growing and expanding at the time? It, it was growing so fast that we, we didn't know what to do. I remember one point my boss said, we're too profitable this year. So if you think you're going to need to buy any office equipment ever, <laughs> buy it now and buy two, um, because it was just beyond what we had ever forecast. And well, I think the UK and the US teams were able to, you know, quickly hire experienced people from the field. We were more homegrown at Sega. And so there were just sometimes we didn't know what we didn't know. I remember we were working on a game called Wrestle War. And I was walking by the artist's working area. He literally had a photograph of Hulk Hogan in one hand and was painting Hulk Hogan as the cover of this uh, game. I said, you know, I think there might be a copyright issue. I, I'm not sure if you're allowed to use his image. He basically shut the door on my face. And then, of course, uh, we shipped it and immediately got sued. And if you, if you look at the, the U.S. and U.K. version, they just painted his blonde hair over with this big black bouffant <laughs> to try and <laughs> you know, get out of the lawsuit. And I think that the Japanese version was still Hulk Hogan, but things like that. that we, I think that first version of Shinobi, which actually shipped before I was there, it had Batman, Spider-Man, Terminator, and Godzilla, all as like non-licensed knockoffs. So we were just growing so fast and breaking every rule um, and learning as we, as we went along. It was an incredible rocket ship. And this, this was during the uh, Master System days as well. So um, I, I was kind of wondering how did, you know, each market create their own identity? I know the Master System in the UK was distributed by uh, Mastertronics as well and, and, and throughout Europe. But, uh, you know, Brazil had its own identity. America had its own identity. It was really interesting to, to see that. And by the way, it's been an incredible walk down memory lane to listen to some of these podcasts you've done. Uh, oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> I don't think that the UK story gets told enough. And I even saw that you had the tech toy story in Brazil, which was just an yes, amazing, yes. which is adventure. Sega still going there, which is uh, yeah. absolutely yeah. crazy. <laughs> so when I when I joined, I joined in April of 1990. So the Master System was still going strong. Uh, Mega Drive had shipped in some markets, but not others. And it was just amazing because at the same time, you know, we were trying to make a Genesis version and a Master System version of many of the same games. So we were trying to scale down and still keep that um, essence of the game there. And it was uh, it was a crazy, fun, creative time. I kind of wish I'd kept some of those uh, those old cartridges. I've seen the Herzog's Way Master System cartridge going for hundreds of dollars. And to think, you know, I just used to have a drawer of them that I didn't care about. <laughs> I was also wondering, like, um, how did 
companies like Virgin um, entering the video games industry and uh, you know buying Mastertronic, how how that affected things. So I was I wasn't there when Virgin acquired Mastertronic, but I was there as as Sega acquired uh, Virgin to make it Sega Europe, and it was just an incredible um, uh, opportunity for us because the team that came there again, some of the folks you've you've interviewed like uh, like Nick Alexander, they really. They were the best at what they did, right? It was our most successful market in the world, if you think about it, because the U.S. had 0% market share. Even Japan wasn't doing that well. Uh, but in Europe, we had. And I still remember my first uh, my first trip there, walking up, and Tony talked about it in his podcast, walking up those uh, circular stairs in the, uh, the old building on Portobello Road. And... It was just so crazy and creative and fun. Well, do you remember the first time you saw plans for Sonic and uh, was a was a kind of strategy to get this uh, mascot at Sega? It, it was really amazing to be there and, and see the whole thing. I, I remember they, they, it was a missive that came out from the CEO to every employee in the company. So we need to beat Mario. We welcome ideas from anyone and anywhere for what that character might be. And I actually toyed around with some ideas myself. I had come to the the self-awareness that I didn't really have any creative talent, but I, I thought around some ideas and never submitted anything. And then, of course, it was uh, Naoto Oshima's concept that, that was eventually selected. And then they put together a team of the, the best of the best from around the company uh, to create a game around the character. And what was really interesting at as far as I know, I've never heard this story from anyone else, but there were definitely some folks at, at Sega of America who were not big fans from day one. And I remember they, they had sent over, uh, the, I will remove the names. I'll say it wasn't Tom Kalinske. Uh, Tom was the father of this all, I like to say. It wasn't Tom, but some other executives at the company had sent back a memo via facsimile, of course, because we didn't have email. Yeah. So we're not sure about this Sonic. I mean, hedgehogs have kind of a slow image, but he's supposed to be fast. And hedgehogs aren't blue. And he's a cartoony sprite, but the backgrounds are sort of polygons. And there's a there's a weird juxtaposition there. So we're not sure if this is right or not. And And to their credit, I think when they saw the first playable level of the game, they actually wrote back and they said, we're wrong. This is the best game we've ever seen. So please accept our apologies and let's figure out how we can make this big. And it it was just the right game at the right time. It was still 2D, uh, which meant we could make it super fast, but still keep it quite controllable. And I think, you know, the transition of Sonic to 3D, this has always been the issue because he goes so fast in a 3D world, it's kind of hard to control him. So it was a, a great Great thing to see that. And it always surprised me later on when I saw uh, Yuji Naka take so much credit for the creation of Sonic because in my mind, you know, he was always a talented, uh, you know, programmer, but it was really Oshima-san. And the story that I, I told in um, Console Wars was at one point, and Oshima-san was very approachable and very friendly, a little shy. I asked him, where did you get the inspiration from? And he said, yeah, I just put the body of Felix the Cat on the, sorry, the head of Felix the Cat on the bottom body of a Mickey Mouse, and that's what it looked like. <laughs> he was also very modest about where, where his inspiration came from. And then, you know, obviously to see 
Tom come across and say, this, this is what we can do to rebuild our success was, was just amazing. In a world where everyone was telling us Nintendo was unbeatable, Tom came from Mattel and just had this positive attitude that said, you know, we, we can do this. It is winnable. And I mean, Tom had incredible strategy, but honestly, I think that that winning attitude was really what, what mattered most. I was going to say, um, it must have been tough. You know, um, Mario was such an iconic mascot and also, you know, Donkey Kong was worldwide known. Um, did people get taken by surprise that uh, Sega actually managed to have such a success from Sonic? I think we were all caught off guard by by the fact that we could actually beat them. I mean, Nintendo was so strong. Bill Gates used to make a joke that Microsoft was the second most profitable company in Redmond, Washington, because Nintendo was just so overpoweringly strong and, and beloved. And I, I think the insight that came, and, and again, this I think came from Tom, was that there is a generational aspect to this, that the kids who had fallen in love with gaming through Nintendo were now getting older and they were not going to want to be pigeonholed as playing a kid's game. You know, kind of like Legos. I mean, adults still enjoy playing Legos, but at a certain point, kids sort of put them away because, well, that's a kid's game. Now, Legos done a good job at fixing that and addressing that. So Tom really get this idea that we're going to position Nintendo as the kids' system, and we're going to be the older. And, and I think this is insight that came from from his work in the toy business. And, and to give a sense of how, how deeply he, he understood this, I was visiting the U.S. I think I actually might have been transferred to Sega of America by this point. And I was in a Toys R Us and I ran into Tom. And I was looking for a toy for my kid. It was called Jibba Jabber. And I'm like, Tom, you know how hard it is to find help in the store. Do you know where a Jibba Jabber is? He goes, yeah, I'll Tinsy. He knew which toys <laughs> were, which I was because every Toys R Us was the same, right? The action figures are in 7C and whatever my kid wanted was in 10C. So this was his battlefield and he knew this space. So I think there's obviously uh, the competitive head-to-head had been set up before Tom came on board that Sega does what Nintendo. But bringing in the new advertising agency with the welcome to the next level and the Sega scream and the attitude was all built on this foundation that we're going to position Nintendo as your little brother's kid system. And you're an older kid and you need a system of your own. I think that was a really smart move because it brought in, um, you know, a huge aspect of uh, coolness and fun as well. Um, You know, when the Genesis launched as well, you had um, celebrities like, as you mentioned, Michael Jackson, who you couldn't get bigger at the time. Um, What was it like kind of being around that environment and uh, uh, meeting celebrities and uh, trying to get them excited about video games? I just remember I was in my office minding my own business and my uh, someone from PR called and said, Michael Jackson's coming in today. Nobody knows how to translate for him. Can you help us out? So I, I don't think I told my boss too much. And I just thought, I've got to go do something. And they pulled me out and I ended up translating for Michael Jackson. At this point, my Japanese had become more fluent all day and then we went to an arcade and it was literally just me and michael for four hours playing every game in the arcade and then they had me go back to his hotel room and hook up uh genesis to his hotel room there because you know it was harder back in those days to get all of the the wires to work and i I ended up translating for him quite a few times when he came over uh the same thing for arth and sena 
Um, I worked on that with his his team and he he flew in and he wouldn't want to drive. He said, I'm not going to drive in traffic. And we didn't know what to do. We couldn't fly a helicopter in because we were too close to the airport. And my boss figured out that there's a river close by. So he landed, we drove him to a river from the airport, and then he took a hydrofoil plane to our office. And uh, That's so both, cool. <laughs> both were light to work with. I mean, San in particular was tough because honestly speaking, Monaco GP2 wasn't even as good as Monaco GP1. The team were just kind of mailing it in. And he was just so passionate. He didn't care about the money he was getting paid. He genuinely did it only so his fans could feel what it was like to to race in one of his cars. Well, that, that was a, a start of this kind of um, uh, celebrity endorsement of games as well. Um, you know, they had like uh, Mike Tyson's punch out, obviously, and then um, stuff like Pete Sampras tennis later on as well. Uh, was this a, a big aim? And was that mainly coming from places like Sega of America? Um, it depends. Those two deals, um, Michael Jackson, I think, was brought to us by Sega of America. Art and Sena was driven by Japan. Um, but in both of those, the games are built on the Japanese side. And in both of those cases, both uh, uh, Michael, or MJ, as we called him, and Art and Sena were pretty hands-on. I mean, they had a lot to say about the game. Whereas some of those others, like, you know, uh, I think we did a, a boxing game with a, who was it that, that knocked out Mike Tyson? Uh, the Buster Douglas boxing. <laughs> so I don't think he was as hands-on. And of course, working with Disney on the Mickey Mouse games, they had so much to say about every single detail of the game because it was an icon for them. So yeah, a lot of my early work was sort of between overseas licensors and the Japanese team. And I had to earn the trust of the team because sometimes if there was something creatively they didn't want to do, they just make an excuse and say, oh, technically we can do it. I had to get to a point where I said, look, guys, I- I'm on your side. I will help you with this, but you can't give me sort of the PR line. You've got to tell me what's really going on. And, and to their credit, they did. Sega was always really good about making me part of the team. And then I worked with them to get that done. And that was the um, uh, famous Michael Jackson involvement with the uh, Sonic music at at some point as well. Yes. Uh, now, by that shit. point, all of the Sonic development had shifted to STI in the United States. So I was really hands off. And, and even when Sonic was in the US, I wasn't really that involved with the game compared to some of the licensed games. But uh, yes, uh, I have heard the same stories that you did, that Michael Jackson did the music and it was uncredited. But I cannot, uh, I cannot vouch for that one way or the other. I, w- I was wondering what Sega's kind of approach to the computer market was, how they regarded guys like, um, you know, uh, they had a huge rivalry with Nintendo, but Atari and uh, Commodore as well, because I know the um, Amstrad Mega PC um, was a kind of interesting hybrid of having a, a, a Mega Drive on a kind of PC, basically on an ISA card, and the Terra Drive as well. Yeah, this was, this was one of the things about Sega was that you know, because we were the challenger, we always had to be the risk taker. And, and as, as a result, we did some crazy things that just did not work out. But we we could not just rely on, you know, our catalog of, of great franchises or our market share. Because, you know, even when we were at our peak, I mean, we're, we're still just a few points ahead of Nintendo, and that was only in a few markets. So we always had to be more agile to make up. And it, Again, even at our peak, 
Nintendo could have bought us on a Monday. We were a speck as far as, uh, you know, capital value was concerned. So we tried everything. We did, yes, a hybrid uh, PC and Mega Drive. So you could you could either do your your PC. I don't think it was even Windows then. We could do your PC work or your uh, plug in a cartridge and play it. Keep in mind, Nintendo did have a partnership with Sharp where they had household TVs with a Nintendo built in. You could just plug the cartridge into your TV. Yeah, in the, into the top of it, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, and it was it was that same attitude that had us do the 32X and the Mega CD. And don't forget the crazy accessories like the Miniser that let you play with your full body and you, uh, oh, the, the activate, activator as well. <laughs> the crazy gun. It's just, we, we again, we couldn't... We knew we wouldn't win if we were conservative. So we just tried everything. And in retrospect, we probably tried too much. A little more focus might have been better, but that wasn't the thinking at the time. So do you think that kind of arms race with Nintendo actually helped both companies progress in, you know, technology development and, uh, you know, as they say, kind of uh, competition drives progress? Oh, it, it absolutely did. And, and the best thing for us was that Nintendo didn't really consider us competition for a long time, right? And their attitude is, look, we're, we're the, the world's leader. We're going to take the high road. You know, this, this you know, nouveau riche uh, company from nowhere, you know, making these crude, you know, violent uh, games are, are not going to be something that we respond to. And, and that, that was the best thing that could have ever happened to us. Now, that being said, at the end of the day, I had been at uh, Sega for seven years, and I'd actually transferred from Sega of Japan to Sega of America in 1994. Uh, I went back to, I think Edi Majini was the CEO when I left, and I said, I- I'm leaving Sega. We cannot compete with the scale of capital investment and resources that are going to be necessary to keep fighting Nintendo plus Microsoft plus Sony or whoever else comes along. It's just, it's just mathematically not possible. Sega needs to become a software company. I'm going to go work at one, which at the time was Namco. I said, if you need that expertise at some point down the road from what I learned by being a third-party publisher, I will come back if you call me. I said that, you know, not thinking the call would ever come. But after five years at Namco, I did get a call from Sega, uh, that time from Peter Morris' team, uh, saying we, uh, we're going to abandon the the Dreamcast, we'd like you to come back and, and help us become a software company. So I had the real pleasure of working with probably two of the most incredible leaders our industry has ever known. Tom Kalinske is, is the father of us all. And Peter Moore is probably one of the most dynamic, charismatic leaders that, that that I've ever met. I mean, if you want someone to lead troops into combat, you would definitely want Peter Moore at the front. I was also wondering, um, you know, going back a bit, I was just wondering about the Game Gear as well and how how much of its design and features were, were created to kind of smash the Game Boy and, uh, you know, offer a more powerful alternative. So I, re- I remember when they first showed me the, the Game Gear, uh, which was, you know, just on this big breadboard box and it was all parts and you needed to see a color handheld system was incredible. The issue of battery life hadn't been discussed yet. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and so it just looked fantastic. I remember the TV tuner, came in and the TV tuner was actually invented by someone from the toy division where, where I later worked. I remember asking him where he got the idea for the, for the TV tuner, you know, after the Sonic the Hedgehog, I was explaining some original creative uh, explanation. He goes, I just woke up one day and it was there in my head. 
that's all, all you could say. So yeah, it was fantastic. And I, I, I had to work on all of the unsexy and unfun parts of trans, not only translating the, uh, some of the instruction manuals and the accessory guides, but also the, uh, the how to repair guides for our internal team, having to translate, don't use benzene or remove the LCD screen with the heat pressure device, which was you know, not easy for my, for my Japanese at the time. And w- w- which also is kind of a, quite a hard task on the Game Gear as well, because I know a lot of people in the, in the retro world are, are going around and are repairing them now at the moment as well. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, it was, again, if, if you could just, you know, sit by a power supply, uh, and not rely on batteries. It was fantastic, but you, yeah, plugged you, into you, the wall. <laughs> you needed like a bandolier of, of batteries, like Rambo, across your chest if you had hope of, of taking on an airplane. Yeah, I think they had this uh, big external pack as well that you could uh, like clip onto your belt, um, <laughs> a oh, battery you, pack. I re- I remember. I mean, that thing was basically a bomb. <laughs> it was like if you charged it wrong, you could catch on fire, and it still <laughs> didn't last very long. Uh, but it, again, it, it it allowed us to. It, it was basically a master system inside, so yeah. so it it helped us in terms of development because we could uh, basically repurpose a lot of our old master system catalog. And the amazing thing, and this was some work research that Sega of America had done, is every time Nintendo advertised Game Boy, Game Gear sales would also go up. Uh, I guess just because they drove traffic to the store. And because our device was something like twice the price of the Game Boy, often we would go up in dollar revenue more than Nintendo, thanks to a Sunday newspaper flyer that Nintendo paid for. So I think from a profitability level for the overseas subsidiaries, it was margins were tough. But from Sega's headquarters perspective, it was great because it allowed us to reuse a lot of the old components that we had already advertised for Master System. And it and it kind of came out when the Atari Lynx came out as well, which was another another color system. And uh, was there much worry about that at the time? Um, I remember I was worried because the the Lynx was a great system and it had scaling and rotation, um, but they didn't have a lot of software support. They didn't have a lot of marketing support. Recall, it might have even been a little bit more expensive, but. I mean, we loved the Lynx. It was, it was, in, and still is a great system. Some of those games, like California games, I think still hold up. Yeah, definitely. And um, I was, I was also wondering about the Pico as well, which was a, a an interesting machine that was kind of aimed at the children's and uh, edu- edutainment, they call it now, educational uh, video game market. So I always wanted to work in Sega's toy division. It was just amazing. It was a high tech toy division. They, they did sort of traditional toys. Um, and preschool toys, but they also did some amazing high-tech toys. So I made friends with one of the managers and I actually worked kind of secretly moonlighting for free for that team for about six months, helping them on some of the early Pico work uh, when my boss and the video game division wasn't looking. And then I finally had a chance to join them and I did. So that was another where I worked on it when it was, you know, the original bread box. And it was, again, it was an amazing concept. They took the the basic circuitry of a Mega Drive, and then paired it with um, a tablet and a pen, and this uh, created software with with book pages, and it could tell what page was open. It could touch it. It was an amazing, miraculous device. Pretty successful in Japan, uh, but not as successful in the United States. It was just 
quite frankly, too expensive. The hardware was too expensive and the software was too expensive, but it was a magical product. And and you kind of mentioned working with different divisions there. I, I, I always find it really interesting that, uh, you know, these companies have a lot more divisions than they, they do nowadays. Um, stuff like what was the relationship with the arcade division like and how did the uh, technology benefit the home systems? So I, I was really in a lucky space because I think a lot of people were siloed um, just because the nature of my work. And I, I was a little bit of a, a jack of all trades. Um, I would be asked to work in, you know, all kinds of divisions. In fact, if you, if you look at the R360 arcade machine, the, the big one that you can get in and it turns you upside down. Oh, I, I remember that. <laughs> they photographed me for the uh, for the safety manual. So I, I'm the person that you see showing you how to put on the seatbelt and where the emergency button is. I just go to work in day and they said they, they need you down in whatever it was, AM1 or AM2 or AM3. Well, why? I'd just go there. So they made me sit in there and take photos. Like I would have worn like a leather jacket and sunglasses or something if they had told me why. And then like I... Two years later, you know, they showed me the machine with me in it. So I had a chance to see a lot of divisions uh, like that. I worked across mostly in the consumer division at Sega, but every now and then working with the, the AM teams. Uh, and then in the toy division where I got to work on, on a whole host of incredible products. There's a, a famous story about um, a British uh, uh, video game TV host who was wearing a big coat called Big Boy Barry. And he, uh, he got stuck in one because... <laughs> his coat got stuck in it and he was stuck in one upside down for quite a while <laughs> oh that's terrifying well there's supposed to be a big red button on the side that you hit because i hit it i got air sick <laughs> and i had to and i had to to unload and then i also again i had a chance to work with both sega of america uh and sega of europe which was fantastic so i got a chance to see the different cultures i, I you know again i got to see that uh, incredible, innovative product focus team at Sega of America. And then, I mean, just the stuff that they could do in the UK. They did a Game Gear co-promotion where, forgive me, if, I don't recall if it was Playboy or Penthouse, not an expert on vintage softcore porn, but they did a product placement where the centerfold, the only thing she was wearing was the Game Gear in her hands, uh, which is just, you know, who thinks it, an idea like that? Incredible. It was it was wild times, and uh, they had um, <laughs> they had the uh, Sega World there as well in in the Trocadero in London. I, I wonder if you ever managed to visit it. That one I didn't see, but I was there when we sponsored the Formula One, the Sega uh, GP. And I remember walking up at it, right into Philip Lay's office as he was on the phone with the management of Grand Prix. And I remember like it was yesterday. He said, "No." I don't want John Major to hand the trophy to the winner. Why can't we have Naomi Campbell? That was just their attitude, right? They they didn't care about status or who was what. They just wanted what was cool at the time. And they knew what was cool at the time. Uh, just an incredible bunch of people. That's really interesting because sometimes, you know, people talk about, you know, the Euro gamer scene and stuff and uh, it, not being cool. But of course, that the 90s in Britain, that was kind of a a peak of cool back then and uh you know sega were were really placed in 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 the middle of all of that well there was a there was a moment where lady diana was visiting some kids on a hospital and just started trashing video games they're horrible i wish kids stopped playing them i don't remember all of the things she's just awful 
And we speculated the reason why was because a few weeks earlier at that uh, British GP, where you know, Sega was a sponsor, somehow they had managed to get a photo of Lady Di like uh, up in a skybox and some race driver that she was uh, rumored to be having an affair with in a photo. And between the two of them was the Sega logo. And that photo was everywhere. So I don't know if, you know, Philip and the marketing team arranged it, but uh, it it was just incredible branding that you couldn't pay for any other way. And they were doing something like that, you know, month after month after month. And what was the kind of magazine culture like? Did you have much connection with the magazines, you know, uh, when you were putting products out and stuff? It was funny because I, I would always uh, be receiving them when they came to the Japan headquarters and they were almost always disappointed because I think they had this, this vision of this super high tech, uh, building and, you know, people with white lab coats and, you know, our building was really dumpy and dirty. I mean, they eventually cleaned up and got a nicer headquarters, but, it, and if we were in a, like a crappy part of town, we were like this industrial, uh, section in the sort of Southwest corner, nowhere near any of the, the cool centers of, of the city. And then most of the time, like we wouldn't allow them to take photographs of the developers or uh, really limited what they could say in interviews. I remember one French photographer was so upset because I have deep down, no, you can't take pictures of the monitors by taking photos from behind. Well, you can't take pictures of their faces because we don't want them identified and recruited. <laughs> he, he handed me his camera. He goes, just, just take your own photos. I, I was wondering as well as as kind of CD technology came around, um, what was the impact like? And and do you remember the first time you kind of saw the Sega CD? Well, I do remember the 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 folks behind 3DO, uh, who by the way were also the the folks behind the Lynx Needle yeah. McCann. Your 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 fans will probably correct me, but they came by at one point and actually pitched the 3DO to us. I think our teams said, you know, we can do this better and cheaper than they can. And uh, I think we suspected that Nintendo was going to be doing something similar. And of course, is, I'm sure you, you and your, your listeners know they did and they didn't because of the partner with, partnership with Nintendo. And so it ended up a little bit rushed to market and there was this sort of add-on component to it. And I, I've since become allergic to add-on components later on when I was at Xbox and the Kinect came out. I was the person who stood up and said, please don't introduce this mid-life cycle. And I was definitely getting flashbacks to the uh, to the Mega CD because you, you end up splitting your your user base. Now, none of us thought, thought it at the time. We just thought we have this unlimited capacity for, for content. You know, you could have, you know, compared to the limited memory capacity of ROMs at the time, it just seemed infinite. And of course, what we didn't realize is it was like drinking a milkshake through a very small straw because at the end of the day, we were still limited by the processing power of the, the Mega Drive itself. It, it must have been quite tough at that time as well because there were so many people entering the, the, the console world. You know, um, you mentioned the 3DO there as well. You had EA heading it and uh, Panasonic, Sanyo, uh, Gold Star were involved and then Commodore had their own machine and uh, Atari had the links as well, especially during that CD-ROM period. Um, there must have been a huge effort to try to, to, to make Sega stand out. And was there any kind of discussion about a, a CD-ROM console on its own? 
If there was, I wasn't aware of it. And what surprises me was that the games that the Japan team made, by and large, didn't really take uh, advantage of the the hardware capability in any big way. I think uh, Sonic CD was probably the best standout. And ironically, I think that was the one Sonic game that they actually let Naoto Oshima be the lead designer on, as opposed to Yuji Naka. And in many people's mind, it was one of the best. It did unique things that you needed the CD-ROM to do. But I think really saved the Mega CD to the degree that it was saved at all was, you know, the Sega of America team was able to get this old content that was created at Hasbro for a platform they canceled. Uh, and that was where Night Trap and some of these other projects came from. And if I recall, I think Al Nielsen actually worked on that project at Hasbro in EMO, never ever mentioned outside. So being able to get that content at least allowed us to showcase Mega CD as doing something you couldn't ordinarily do. And a lot of the breakthrough content did come from the U.S. side, but it just wasn't enough. And what it ended up doing was splitting our development resources. So neither the standalone Mega Drive nor the the Mega CD got 100% of our focus. And I had the 32X as well coming in there too. I, I wish I knew where that came from. I, I literally feel like I woke up one day and it was there because it was a very main <laughs> USA thing. Again, all of this was was done because we knew the next next generation system was too far away. Yeah. And we were worried that Nintendo was going to come out with the next gen system and kind of do to us what we did to them. And so these were just seen as ways to extend our life cycle and, and buy us some more time. So when the Saturn came out, we would uh, not be beaten to market. And of course, you mentioned earlier that you'd, you'd you'd gone to Namco during the time that the Saturn came out, and then um, uh, returned to Sega uh, during during the kind of Dreamcast period. Um, how had the company changed in the culture at that point? The culture hadn't really changed that much at all, um, which was the problem, right? So Peter Moore and his team were out in front, um, seeing how the market had changed, seeing how consumer perceptions had changed. And we're trying to deliver that message to Sega of Japan, for which, you know, I, I became co-opted. And Japan just didn't want to hear it, right? They felt that we're just not marketing aggressively enough or creatively enough. And we just needed to, to hustle more. But what was happening was they were still sort of taking that attitude, bringing the arcade game home. And I remember Peter sitting over there once with something called the Gamer's Manifesto which he tried to explain to them what some of the prerequisites for success were. And we just said, I said, they can't be games that are playable in a week because people will, or finishable in a week because people will return them to the rental store and to, to GameStop and get their money back. Uh, they have to have, you know, multiplayer components. You need to think about more mature-focused themes. Um, and then there's a few other, just what today would be basic requirements. And they were having none of it. Uh, the only person who really seemed to be listening and pay attention was Nagoshi-san, who had made Super Monkey Ball. And I actually used, I used Super Monkey Ball as an example of how it actually met a lot of those requirements. Uh, and then he went on to make the Yakuza series. So uh, Naka, on the other hand, accused me of wanting us to make pornography because I had a name check to GTA as, as uh, an example of the new type of gaming market that we were building for. 
Which is amazing with the standards now, because you look at the Switch and some of the games that are on there, and, you know, Nintendo was always seen as this uh, kind of really, really straight-laced, clean company, as well as uh, kind of Sega started to get into the more edgy stuff as well. Well, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I think PlayStation probably deserves the most credit for dragging the rest of the industry, uh, kicking and screaming into a world where it was really seen as mainstream media and not just, a, you know, a, a gaming hobbyist. And Yeah, I was, that must have uh, had a huge impact because I, I even remember we used to have in nightclubs PlayStations and, you know, uh, the the way that they hit that mature gamer market um, was, was just astounding. I remember one point seeing, um, I must have been in the UK for another trip, and I saw a PlayStation ads, and it was this uh, uh, young man and young woman, and they had a tight-fitting shirt, and their nipples were showing through the shirt, and their nipples were the PlayStation controller buttons. I just remember seeing that and thinking, we've been beaten. Like, they, they have taken our playbook and done it again. They made it a game for older players. They made it edgier. They made it cooler, and and they not only was their strategy good, but they just executed it flawlessly. And then they had the content to back it up. You were involved with the Dreamcast as well, and um, uh, a lot of gamers regard that as a very underrated system. Um, do you think it would have flourished with a bit more of a chance? I think really what it comes down to um, was that the the cost to make really good high def large-scale 3D games uh, was more than Sega could could do on its own. I mean, creatively, there were just some incredible games. I think Jet Set Radio Future. Jet Set Radio Future was a great example of uh, of the potential when you bring in our best creators and our uh, and the hardware together. So I don't know if it was, at the end of the day, a battle over hardware capability, but we just couldn't compete with the volume of third-party games as well as the strength of the first-party games. We still struggled. I mean, games like Crazy Taxi on the Dreamcast were great games, but at the end of the day, they were really just arcade conversions, and that, that wasn't enough to to compete with a new generation of gamers that was accustomed to Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, and uh, Shenmue was a, a huge effort as well on the uh, Dreamcast. It, it was amazing to me how, if you look at it now, how ahead of its time Shinwu was. So many aspects of that game have gone on to be, you, you could you could see them in, in Yakuza, in Grand Theft Auto, in Batman, in so many other games. But sometimes being too early can be just as dangerous as being too late. It's it's kind of interesting that I found that, you know, as as a lot of these titles were getting released, of course, the arcade division was was also doing quite well with Sega. Um, I remember arcades were still quite a big thing at the time. And uh, you mentioned Crazy Taxi. They had an arcade version as well. Was the arcade division kind of protected in a sense compared to the um, home division? I think the arcade division made most of its money in Asia. But the arcade business, you know, had lasted in Japan much longer. I think on a more serious note, just because Japanese homes are so small, there is more tradition there if you go out to to have your fun, right? You go out to a karaoke bar or you go out to a game center to play. So I think that fit a more standard play pattern. Whereas in the U.S., it's all about making your game room or your, or your man cave. 
So the arcade business overseas was always basically just a small addition to to what it could deliver in uh, in Japan proper. And and stuff like House of the Dead and stuff, you know, they they were fantastic arcade titles that kind of you know made it across, and um, that that was really good to see at the time. Did you ever play Typing of the Dead? Yes, yes, I've played that. I'm not very good at it. But yeah. I remember being in Japan and going up and seeing it. I go, well, dude, I'm a native English speaker. I know how to type. And getting in there, and there was some woman who was on the other typewriter, and she was just killing me. Just, you know, literally five times faster than I was. And it, it was really humbling to, to be beaten so badly uh, in an arcade like that. I, I, I was wondering as well with... Um... With the Dreamcast, it must have been a huge blow when EA kind of um, announced it wouldn't develop titles for it. And uh, did that kind of spur that whole Sega Sports division as well, which um, started bringing out a lot of titles and and, and, a, and a lot of really good titles, actually, at the time. So, again, the decision to put Dreamcast to bed was made before they brought me back. So I was really brought there to help the team become a third-party publisher. So my biggest challenge was going back to PlayStation and Nintendo and saying, you know, all of those cheeky ads that we did making fun of you. Yeah, really sorry. Can can you give us some strategic support and, and help us out? And, and to their credit, they did. Um, they were great partners. So, Sony, I remember, helped us enormously for uh, Virtual Fighter. Um, Nintendo, I remember bringing the Sega mascot to Nintendo headquarters and they had the Mario mascot waiting at the door to give him a hug and welcome him. And that was that was a very, very sweet moment. For Sega Sports, um, I wasn't in charge of Sega Sports ever, but for some reason I found myself in a, uh, uh, in a focus group. So I was Sega Entertainment. So I was everything except sports. My, my colleague was Sega Sports. And I remember sitting at a, a focus group and we, we showed them, we were there with Greg Thomas, who was the head of the studio. We showed a bunch of users our game and Madden. And they said, you're right, Sega football is better than Madden. This is better, that's better, it's an all-around better game. So we said, well, will you switch? They go, no, no, all my friends are playing Madden, so I'm going to play Madden. It doesn't matter to me that Sega Sports is better. What matters to me is that all my friends play Madden, and that's what we do. And that told me a lot. And and I kind of love that, you know, the legacy of a lot of these titles, it, it as you said, it wasn't just lost, it wasn't just stopped. You know, they continued and they've grown. And now Sega seems to be in actually quite a, a, a loved and strong position in, in, in the retro video game world. I think they've done a great job recently with Sonic. Um, they took it, I remember the first movie came out, it was a big hit. I think about the third week in the cinema, a COVID hit and they shut it all down. And then a new movie came out and, and rebuilt that momentum. They've done a great job of rebuilding that franchise. One of the smartest things that I saw them do was put Sonic the Hedgehog on Roblox, which was a risky move. I don't think any other video game company had done that with their core franchise. But what it did was reintroduce Sonic, not just as a TV show or a movie, but as a game to a whole new generation of gamers who will now be playing Sonic games for for years and years and years. So... Because I, I think, you know, the parents have memories of it, so they'll take the kids to go and see it. And, you know, this is what I used to love. And then, like you said, you're getting a whole whole new generation involved. And nothing makes me happier than to see a parent and a child play play a game together. And um, 
Sega have just uh, revealed some big budget reboots uh, like Crazy Taxi, as you mentioned, Jet Set Radio, Golden Axe, Shinobi and Streets of Rage. Are you looking forward to seeing these titles? I am, I am so excited to see the, the, the little snippets that they showed us on the uh, the Game Awards preview really make me hopeful. Uh, Jet Set Radio in particular, I thought, looked looked just amazing. And I always thought that game had the most depth of, of anything they did during that Dreamcast uh, generation, but all of them look great. I mean, you can't go wrong with Crazy Taxi. So I'm very excited to see what they do. I thought they picked great games. Streets of Rage uh, was another one there. So I, I think this could be a real Sega renaissance that we're approaching. I really wish them well for that. Well, Mike, it's been fantastic getting you on. And, you know, um, you, you've worked for so many fantastic companies as well. You know, uh, president and CEO of Square Enix as well, and um, uh, Namco, Epic. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to uh, do another interview at some point as well. I'd love to have you on again. I'd be happy to. Look, my, I think in spite of all the wonderful places I've I've been able to work, my, my blood is still Sega, Sega Blue. Uh, all of the good things that happened in my career were, were thanks to Sega and some of the great leaders I had the good fortune to work with. So it's been a wonderful walk down memory lane to share some of those stories with you. 